What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Now, look, for those of y'all who are new here, the purpose of Living Corporate is to create a space that affirms black and brown experiences in the workplace, right? There are certain things that only we can really understand. And when I say we, I mean the collective non-white professional <laughs> in corporate America. Um, and when we look around, if you like Google being black and brown in corporate America, you may see like a post um, in Huffington Post or something that kind of communicates from a position of lack. But I don't know if we necessarily see a lot of content that empowers and affirms our identity and our experience. And that's really the whole purpose of Living Corporate. It's with that that I'm really excited to talk to y'all about the See It To Be It series. Amy C. Wanniger, um, who has been a guest on the show, who's a writer for Living Corporate, and who's also the author of Network Beyond Bias, um, she's actually partnered with Living Corporate to actually have an interviewing series where she actually sits down with black and brown professionals so that we can learn about what they actually do and see ourselves in these roles, right? So it's a variety of industries that she's, she's talking to a lot of different types of folks. You're going to be able to see what they do. And at the same time, you're going to hopefully be able to envision yourself in that role. Hence the title, see it to be it. Okay. So check this out. The next thing you're going to hear is this interview with Amy C. Wanniger. Y'all hang tight. Catch y'all next time. Peace. Hello, Dr. J. How are you? Good. How you doing? Doing great. How's the weather in California today? Well, today the weather is good. It seems we have weather. <laughs> oh, that's unusual for you guys. <laughs> right, right, right. It is highly, highly unusual, but we're happy. We need the weather. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit. So you work in the education industry. You're a professor at Long Beach State. And I was wondering if you can tell me, how did you get into academia or higher education? And what about it appealed to you? Did you always want to do this or did you kind of happen into it? Right. Thank you. That That is a great question. I got into it because I, you know, the, nor the pretty typical story that you have going to college, you know, your family tells you that that's the thing to do. And at least in my family you have to either be a doctor or lawyer or some other profession of that ilk. And I thought, well, I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a doctor. So I'm going to be an engineer. I started out as an engineering major and um, I just got tired of doing math. If I can be perfectly frank, by the time I finished a third semester of calculus, I was done. And fair enough. So, yeah, exactly. You know how that goes. And so I took this GE class in, in communication and we sat around and we were studying small group communication and we would get together in groups and we would discuss topics and we would share ideas and we would have conversations in a college classroom, which I thought was revolutionary because up until that point, I really didn't have experience with uh, communication in the classroom. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, wow, this is really cool. I think that this might be my thing. And the next semester, I switched my major to communication studies. I started working with one of my favorite professors who became uh, a mentor. And um, one thing just led to another. So it wasn't like I had this grand vision of, gosh, yes, I wanted to be a professor since I was four years old. Uh, that wasn't me. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know 
what I wanted to be when I grew up. It was quite confusing. And I just stumbled uh, on to what I do. I um, developed a nice relationship with some some colleagues uh, at the university. I um, got into a good master's program and then just created a, a trajectory really through networking, which I know is uh, dear to your heart. And that networking panned out in some really interesting ways. So it was a lot of uh, networking and things that I really didn't plan a priori, but just seemed to work out in the process of doing and connecting with people. And um, I, I really loved it and I still love it. And I think the idea of just connecting with people, connecting with people through conversations, connecting with people through uh, teaching, through doing workshops, retreats, things of that sort. I find that very rewarding, uh, very much, um, you know, aligned with the things that, that I value. And I find working with people to be, um, you know, useful. You see the results of it right away if you impact somebody's life, if somebody is moved by something that you say. You see those those results very quickly just by looking into people's eyes somebody's getting an idea or somebody's asking a question or somebody's emailing you and saying oh my gosh that was great that was fantastic and i think i really enjoy that almost instant feedback uh in interactions uh through teaching through doing workshops and things of that sort that's fantastic so what i heard in that that was that you grew up with a value around education and um and a lot like I was, I, I went into edu- I went into my college programs not knowing like what does that mean? What am I going to be when I grow up? And um, sort of through the the role of a mentor and sort of happenstance, you were able to channel this value of education into something that's giving forward to new students and is true to your values and maybe not so much math. <laughs> that yeah it's true to my values that that's for sure yeah um giving forward you know connecting with people making a point or having a conversation with somebody that um wasn't there before right so you enter into conversation or you enter into dialogue with someone and in moments that come seemingly from nowhere you you develop a line of thought or a line of argument or a conversation that is really meaningful and rich and it almost seems like magic is happening that you're co-creating or co-inventing with someone and that's really kind of fun and engaging and and becoming more and more rare as we lead mediated lives and i find that really rewarding yeah, I want to come back to that idea of mediated lives in just a moment, but um, can you tell me first, what's been the biggest surprise to you? So you you moved into this, um, down this path of becoming a professor, and then you got there. And what surprised you now that you're on the other side of that particular journey? What didn't you expect, good or bad, um, about your industry? Yeah, the thing that surprised me the most was the the variety of activities that one needs to perform as a college faculty member. So I got into it because I like to teach and I like the interaction with students. I like being in the classroom. I like getting into discussions. I like lecturing. I like having that experience where you share a concept or an idea and 
it makes sense to somebody, they get it, their eyes light up and all of a sudden they are impacted in, in some positive ways. I really like that. And I thought that that was the, the majority of the show, but no, that that's not the majority. In fact, that's just one third. There's this whole thing about publishing and uh, being on committees and uh, being uh, in having service obligations. And I found that to be uh, surprising and extremely uh, time consuming. And not that it's bad, it's just, it's not typically my thing. Um, I think in most areas of, of academia, uh, people have their strengths or their weaknesses or their preferences. And uh, my preference is on the, on the teaching side of things. Uh, service and academic publishing are great. And I've, I've done some of that but that isn't really where, where my passion lies. Uh, and so that was uh, a bit surprising at the beginning and, and at times a bit uh, daunting just because it's, it's, uh, it's time consuming. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work, uh, especially in, in publishing and getting your work out there and the process of revision and working with reviewers, all of that can be very time consuming and, um, so that's a challenge, yeah. So I remember being in college, um, and I can tell you that my favorite professors were the ones that were there because they enjoyed teaching, not the ones that were there because they enjoyed the publishing aspect. They were usually not the best ones in class. I usually learned a little less from them because they, they tended not to care as much about making connections so much as you know they were worried about the publications and that sort of thing. So on behalf of your students, I want to thank you for sticking with it and being there for them because I think that's so important. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hear that from students every once in a while. And uh, at times, you know, some faculty are very blessed. They, they won like a genetic and I guess personality lottery, right? They're very good at teaching. They're really good at publishing and they're very good at doing the whole service thing. But I think most people have a strength in a particular area and everything else is, is okay but isn't as, I guess, you know, dominant in their, uh, in their professional life. So, um, yeah, I think that your point is, is well taken. And at times it's a struggle for faculty who really are into the whole publishing game to, to teach uh, as effectively as possible. And don't get me wrong, that's not everyone. I think the vast majority of faculty do a great job and, Sometimes people who are very well published are actually very good teachers because they're kind of on the cutting edge of their field and they are really excited about it and they bring that excitement to the classroom and that's fantastic. But in my experience, that that's fairly rare. Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody's not in, um, in academia now, if that's something that they aspire to, maybe they're an undergrad or even a grad student at this point, and they're thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe this is for me, where would they go to learn more? One of the places to, to learn more is through a mentor or a colleague or somebody who's already, quote unquote, arrived. If you find a professor, a colleague um, who is really a mentor, that's really the best way to find out uh, if the career is for you. Um, 
usually when you go to grad school, especially if you're getting a, a PhD, you're going to have a, a committee of people that are working with you as you finish your dissertation. And you usually have a, a faculty mentor or a faculty advisor. And that person uh, typically is the type of person that, that guides you, that you know writes your letters of recommendation, that has you on their research team. And that is the, the primary way that you get socialized into the, the process of becoming a professor. Uh, another thing that people tend to do is go to conferences and you know networking events where once, twice, or three times a year, there are national conferences, local conferences, international conferences, where graduate students go and meet people across the nation and really create uh, a growing body of colleagues uh, across the globe or across the, the United States and find opportunities uh, to work. Um, in fact, you know, most people, I believe still today, get hired that way. You hire people that you know, or you hire people that have worked with people that you know. In my experience, that, that probably happens 60 to 70% of the time. And, uh, and again, just like in almost any other industry, I would assume networking becomes very critical. It becomes a part of your professional practice, and it's a great way to find out if the profession is right for you. So you said something interesting, and I'm betting that you knew I would pick up on this. You said that people typically hire people that they know, and networking is important. And since the audience, for at least part of, of this interview, is, um, to use Living Corporate's terminology, uh, black and brown professionals who maybe feel like they're outside of um, the in-group in academia, right? If we hire who we know, that tends to self-perpetuate the demographics of a, of a department or of a school or of a profession. And so what resources are available to young people of color or to professionals of color in your area that help them maybe navigate those waters in a way that um, someone like me wouldn't have to do? Or um, what advice can you give them to kind of overcome that feeling of otherness? The, the feeling is, is, a, is a challenge, uh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, what's really exciting is that there's more and more programs available for uh, persons of color and individuals from uh, historically marginalized groups. Programs like BUILD and um, the Mellon Mays Research Fellowship, those are just two. There's another one called RISE, um, and we have those types of programs on campus and they're, and they're national, they're all over the country. And essentially those are programs designed to help students from minority groups form a relationship with a faculty mentor in a larger community that is designed to help them navigate the murky waters of their professional development. They would start their their undergraduate program with, with BUILD or with Mellon Mays or with the RISE program, let's say perhaps when they're like a sophomore in college and they would be assigned to a faculty mentor, to a research team, they would 
participate in conferences and um, get mentoring advice and they would get help uh, putting together a statement of purpose, a resume, a vita, and have publications with um, with faculty members or um, let's say conference papers on their own as a part of a research team. All those things are not only very possible, but um, I see them happening on campus um, every day. It's part of uh, what I do is I train faculty mentors on how to create conversations that are empathic and nurturing and holistic so that people know uh, the kind of language that might be best, the kinds of things to say, how things might be interpreted. And we try to create uh, scenarios where we are asked to engage in everyday conversations in a way that is much more uh, inclusive and less divisive. Uh, so that's that's my best answer is uh, find one of these programs on your campus and join, put in your, your application um, and uh, and take it from there. That's one of the best ways to do it. No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Because I know if sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. And if the target demographic for these organizations, if the target age or, um, you know, the target year is sophomore year, that's very early for a lot of students to know even where they want to head or what they want, you know, what they might want to do. And so I know I was in like mid senior year and then all of a sudden panicked because what I thought I was going to do wasn't going to happen. Right. So um, I think it's great that if we can engage students earlier in these kind of programs so they can explore what's out there and specifically what's out there for them in terms of help so that, you know, they can overcome some of the affinity bias or some of the, um, some of the self-perpetuating selection process that maybe, um, you know, existing faculty have. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. That's an excellent question. So what other recommendations do you have um, for students and particularly students of color who want to explore uh, careers in academia? Are there, are there books, are there articles, are there websites? Um, are there other resources around that they should uh, take a look at? Well, there there are plenty of resources, and again, I, I would just go back to uh, the resources that are available in some of these programs. Obviously, all these programs build the Mellon Mays Fellowship, the Rise Program, and many others that that I don't have off the top of my head um, are available. Obviously, online. So, if you Google the Mellon Mays Fellowship, if you Google Build, um, you will see uh, a major. Uh, website or a local website for your university or for um, locations uh, across the country and then be able to uh, you know gather the information that you need uh, not only on the website but find out what what campus near you maybe even your own campus uh, has that program I know that uh, the build community goes out to junior colleges and does some pretty heavy recruiting uh, to let students know that these resources are available. So BUILD in particular, I'm, I'm familiar with them because I've worked with them for the past couple of years. And I know that a huge part of their initiative is recruiting. So not just uh, waiting for students to come to them, but really allowing uh, students to know that the resources are available by going out into the community. 
Excellent. Thank you. So you had said before that you have kind of this passion um, for creating connectedness and that you discovered this passion uh, when you took a general ed class in communications. And so can you tell me more about where, um, where that passion comes from or what, what do you think was awakened in you uh, in that moment? Yeah, one of the things that was awakened is just the power of of solidarity, the the power of of coming together through dialogue to find what we have in common as opposed to what we have in difference. And that whole idea, you know, it's kind of a nice idea and it sounds like a like a really nice phrase, but to have that as an experience is is life-changing where you go gosh, here I come into a conversation where I thought there was all these differences or I'm not getting along with people or I'm different or there's something wrong with me. And then I go into a room and I have a, com a conversation with a variety of strangers and all of a sudden there's this feeling of connectedness. There's this feeling that I belong. There's this feeling that I can contribute. There's this feeling of, you know, kinship. Right. Uh, Father Greg Boyle, who's out here in, in California, he's um, he runs the, the number one gang rehabilitation center in Homeboy the United Enterprises. States. Yeah. Homeboy Enterprises. There you go. There you go. Yeah. He, yeah. He is, so, um, he is a national treasure. He is a hero. He is amazing. Yes. Yes. Father Boyle. He has this great line where he says, you know, imagine the circle of kinship where no one is outside that circle, right? And I, and I love that that metaphor, the, the circle of, of kinship. And I believe that we do that through many means, but primarily through conversation, through discussion, through um, the, the process of sharing messages with each other. Uh, I see him do this, you know, he has his, his daily message of the day and he, you know, films himself having like a little talk and, you know, this impacts people not only in his community, but, but all over the country. And he, um, you know, goes and gives talks and, and I can see that a part of their process is really this constant conversation of bringing people in uh, of of making them a part of the community, of using uh, a language, uh, a discourse uh, of unity, of connectedness, of how we come together really as an extended family and then bring people into that family, help them feel included so that we can heal what is what has been broken through this new experience of solidarity, right? And, and the power to do that through messages, through language, through metaphor um, is I think just such a gift, um, such, a, such a beautiful experience uh, to have with people. And um, I've discovered that that was a, like a rare thing, you know, that I saw in college back at the time. I go, wow, to be able to study this process of creating messages and and using words to to bring people together the power of story for example telling uh compelling stories that people can relate to about our challenges and where we came from and how we are similar through the narratives that we construct about 
our life history, our different positionality, the different intersections of race, class, nationality, um, sexual orientation that then help us be relatable, human, understandable, uh, vulnerable, right? Um, those things, I think, get navigated primarily through the exchange of messages, through the exchange of, of, um, of, of linguistic, you know, discursive thought, and those kinds of things I, I find just very rewarding. It's fantastic. So for those who don't know, Homeboy Enterprises is, um, it's a lot of things, but primarily what they do is they take former gang members and teach them job skills, marketable job skills, and then they create businesses, right, with um, with the people in their program. So they right. might create a whole t-shirt company with that's comprised, the employees of which are maybe even rival gang members all working together um, in sort of this rehabilitative space to overcome the past and to, to contribute to the economy and to really heal through through work and through shared um, shared goals. Exactly, exactly. I think they have, you know, four or five uh, businesses. They have a cafe, they have a bakery, um, and quite a wide variety of, of businesses. And um, about a year ago, um, one of the organizations on campus, the Euclea Center for Ethical Leadership, uh, gave Father Boyle a, um, an award and he came, he was invited to come and, um, you know, accept the award. Unfortunately, he, he was, he was, he was under the weather at the time and I didn't have a chance to meet him at that time, but one of the homeboys came instead and, and, uh, Miguel, uh, who was in charge of marketing just delivered this speech that was stunning. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. It was just powerful yeah so very moving work that's amazing and all of that through storytelling and connectedness exactly and it was all really through the power of language a, a guy up on a stage with a microphone telling his story that's beautiful that really is beautiful yeah so um in the time that we have left i would like uh your perspective on code switching and on cultural dexterity. So you and I had a had a brief conversation about this before we started recording. And I just want to know, what do those terms mean to you? I know that you use the term code switching to talk about when you're flexing between English language communication and Spanish language communication. Um, but what does that mean to you? What's, what's the feeling behind, um, behind that term? So um code switching for me is you know experientially is that capacity to go from speaking english to speaking spanish or then from speaking spanish to speaking english and being able to go back and forth from those uh linguistic uh traditions and that's how I tend to use the term code switching in a very basic, organic, lay type of, uh, you know, meaning, right? So nothing, nothing too intellectual or, or, you know, crazy cerebral, very simple. And I, and I mentioned that to you in our conversation because I did that 
in in the in the TED talk, one of the things that I wanted to do in in preparing for that was to be able to code switch from English to Spanish and Spanish to English. One, because I thought that would be really fun. Two, uh, I hadn't really seen it done before. I know I'm sure somebody has, but it doesn't happen very often. And also to be able to express through the power of spoken word that capacity to navigate two languages. And, and by doing that, create a sense of community, reach somebody through you know, an online medium or through the internet or wherever that message gets sent that says, gosh, here's somebody speaking my language or here's somebody uh, code switching or here's somebody kind of going back and forth and having a moment of, of identification. And I think through those moments of identification, we start to experience uh, solidarity, a sense of unity, a sense that we're not alone that there's uh, other people out there in the community that are like us, that are human and are willing to uh, put themselves out there and put out a message that can be unifying, can be compassionate, can be empathic and can be, you know, the beginnings of, of a healing moment, not only for us as individuals, but, but for uh, communities at large. So for me, that's my best answer uh, with, code switching. I want to just uh, switch to the other topic that you were asking about, which is, you know, cultural dexterity. And uh, cultural dexterity comes from uh, a body of, of academic work looking at cross-cultural or intercultural communication, uh, advancing the idea that we need to adapt or to adjust as we shift from one cultural orientation to another. And being able to do that is to have cultural dexterity, to be able to navigate not just my culture of origin or my uh, tradition, but to be able to seamlessly uh, adapt to different discourse communities, right? Without, you know, excessive effort or you know stumbling around um and and that that capacity i think is is a skill that you know we really need in not only in our world but in our country to be able to communicate with people that i perceive are different from me i think i think we all need to have that as as a skill set because that is a primary human experience difference is a primary human experience. Whenever we meet the other, we are in the experience of difference. And how do we bridge uh, that difference? How do I navigate that conversation with someone that is different uh, from me? For some people, that's very easy. For, for others, it's very hard. And cultural dexterity is a concept that uh, tries to get at the ways um, that, that we do that. And, you know, as uh, you might imagine, one of the simplest ways to do that is, again, uh, navigating conversations in such a way that we find what we have in common as opposed to what we have in difference. And we do this very organically all the time. When we meet somebody for the first time, we say, hey, how you doing? What's your name? Uh, where are you from? What do you do? What do you like? Where'd you go to school? And we ask all these questions to try to 
gather enough information to find something that we have in common that we can then zero in on to develop a, a dialogue back and forth around an issue that we have in common. So if I, if I speak with you and I know that you're interested in networking and diversity, well, then I'm, I'm also interested in that. And I go, gosh, that's a topic of conversation that we can bridge whatever divisions we might have or whatever difference we might have because diversity and networking are such a thing that we have in common that the other stuff just is not all that important or is kind of trivial or isn't really central to this passion that we bring to diversity and networking and things of that ilk. And I think that uh, cultural dexterity is uh, uh, an area of study, again, that tries to uh, teach those skills strategically. Excellent. So I want to commend you on, on your uh, bilingual TED Talk. And the reason I say that is because I think that there's, I think in the current political climate and with the new, some of the news stories that I've seen about people who have been um, harassed or assaulted for speaking languages other than English in public spaces, to me, right. for you to speak Spanish from a stage is an act of profound resistance against a culture that seeks to punish difference. And I can only imagine what that meant to someone in the audience who, you know, is a first generation immigrant or, you know, who, for whom um, Spanish is their primary language at home, but they have to navigate a world that is in many ways alien to them because you know, the, the culture seeks to strip them of language. One of the, um, you know, one of the tools of colonialism has been to strip people of their language and to strip people of their culture by forbidding language. And so I commend you for that. I think that that is such a, a profound act of resistance and a profound act of, of courage and solidarity to do that so publicly and with so much empathy for your audience. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate that. I, I, I have got to tell you that was difficult to do. Yes, yes. It, it is a, a challenge because, uh, you know, for all the reasons that you're articulating and, and more, uh, we live in a climate where it's extremely weird uh, to get up on stage and then not only do that, but realizing that you're being videotaped and that is going to be launched at some point uh, all over the internet and people are going to be able to see that, you know, forever, you know, forever. Right. And so there's this strange uh, feeling of vulnerability that, that, I've never really experienced uh, before because, you know, I'm, I'm not someone that, that does Ted talks every day. Um, that was, that, that's my, that was my first one, but there was this whole sense of, of feeling very, very vulnerable, very open, very, um, you know, out there, right. Just without, without a safety net, right. Absolutely. Especially on the day, you know, on the day of rehearsal where you see 
that there's all these lights on you, right? There's just you, the stage, and these massive lights where you can't see the audience because the the lighting is so powerful. In order to you know, in order to capture you um, uh, brilliantly in all the color and the dynamics of the of the you know the technical aspects of of the filming there needs to be just a massive amounts of of lighting and at first it was just a shock to the system uh you know the rehearsals for me did not go too well i was very frustrated because i, I was i was distracted i felt very uh vulnerable i felt very agitated uh, because it wasn't something that I that I had rehearsed uh, before, and then I knew what I was going to do. I knew what I was going to get up there and say. And uh, after saying it, though, it felt really good. <laughs> you know, it felt it felt very rewarding. It felt very evocative. It felt um, you know transformative. It felt very emotional. There was a couple of times during the performance where I I choked up because I didn't want to go up there and just be safe. I didn't want to go up there and just be very logical. I didn't want to go up there and just say, well, you know, I'm going to talk about my research and these three areas and be very uh, linear and Aristotelian and academic because I felt that if I did that, I would put on a very easy shield and not really be of service. And I just felt called to just, you know, let it, let it ride and i was happy that i took that risk for sure so i really appreciate the uh, the affirmation no absolutely and i you know i as i'm listening to you i think about um it was almost a coming out a public coming out right where i've seen and i've experienced you know being in front of a room and coming out and um and it is it's terrifying there's nowhere to hide um you know, physically, you're probably safe, but t tricking your brain into believing that when you're out there on your own, separated from a crowd, right? Spotlight is literally on you and there is absolutely nowhere to hide once those words escape. It can be, it, it can be incredibly freeing, but it can be terrifying as well. And so, um, you know, I, I, and again, given kind of where we are, uh, politically and culturally right now. I just, I think that, that was incredibly brave and, um, you know, and, very, and probably very affirming to the people that were there listening to you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that tension between uh, being terrified and then having an experience of freedom, right? It, that is the tension that no question about it, where you feel uh, very liberated, but, at the same time, a feeling of, of terror, a feeling of excitement. And talk about intersectionality. Intersectionality as an inner experience of multiple intersections of oppressive, liberating energies in the simultaneity of an insane moment, right? Because, I, you know, how many people have the blessing or the opportunity to get up on a stage and have all lights on you and deliver a message it's such a blessing such a such a gift and i wanted to honor that moment you know the uh, ted has a great line or a great mission to um deliver you know a message 
worth spreading, right? That idea, that, that brand, a message worth spreading, an idea worth spreading. And every time I prepared, I wanted to make sure that I was uh, saying something that was worthy of that mission, that was worthy of that statement, that was worthy of that um, ideal. And in doing that, right, in, in attempting my best to stay true to those ideals, it was it was terrifying. It was it was difficult. It was um, it was uh, liberating, and all of that happening simultaneously. Like you feel like you're, you know, your heart's in one place and your mind's in another, and your body's going in a different direction, and you forget, and then you bring it back, and then you don't know how you're going to be, and you can't predict the future, but you know it's going to be great, and you're not, but you're not sure, and, and it's these weird. Uh, journeys of the heart and the mind and the soul and you're hoping gosh once I go through this whole maddening process I hope I arrive on the other side okay right but it's just really what we talk about in kind of classic uh, stories about the leap of faith right mm -hmm. taking a leap of faith taking uh, the hero or the heroine's journey um, finding a way to kind of navigate your journey one step at a time by claiming your truth as best you can in the moment and allowing wherever you land to be okay. Love that. Yes. And you know, the, the leadership lesson in that about authenticity and vulnerability, I think is, is not to be overlooked um, because certainly as, as you're stripping away some of that facade and you're, and you're, you know, opening yourself up, in that way, people are seeing you as a leader in a way that maybe they hadn't before. And they're identifying with you and with your story. And they become personally invested then in your success. And I think that that's, I think that's the real gift of leadership in an authentic and vulnerable way is that other people become invested in your success because they sense that you are equally invested in theirs. Right. I totally agree. There's this interesting uh, dialectic, right? There's this interesting reciprocal relationship where I think through vulnerability, we make connections with the other because we come to understand at a very evocative embodied level, our essential humanity. So I'm a human being, just like you're a human being, and we're having a moment of solidarity where you might be admiring me, which is great, but I think the bigger gift is that you see yourself. You see the beauty of you in those moments because in my, as I like to call it, stumbling successfully, I have said something or I have done something that allows you to see what is already beautiful inside you and helps you recognize it in, in a moment. And then you might project that onto me, which is fine. But hopefully what happens is that you feel empowered, you feel motivated, and then you feel that you want to pay that gift forward by allowing someone in your life to know that they're not alone that they have value, that they are here with you for a reason. And in dialogue, you get to discover what that reason is. 
That's beautiful. And if it's okay, we will end there. Thank you so much for this conversation. And thank you for um, extending your vulnerability to my audience. I appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure connecting with you. Always, always wonderful to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.